The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is my real friend, uh, one of my favorite people, Beth Schachter, who is a co-producer and writer on the show Quantico. She's also a writer-director. Uh, and I'm a producer-producer now. I just got promoted. Oh, now she's a full producer. Full producer. You're a full producer. Well, IMDb still is lagging. I understand. It's lagging. It says Those co-producer. because they're owned by Amazon. But I know you've already been doing the job regardless. I know. Everyone in the room talks about how you're the rock star and you're <laughs> basically help run set and everything, but I'm just saying. No, I know. IMDb's got to catch up. Sorry. No, that's fine. Um, no, advocate for yourself. Start right away. Don't I know, right away. Just immediately. Right away. <laughs> just go for it. Let's just fight. <laughs> How else can it happen? I mean, you have to, if you don't want to, this is what I, a lot of what I want to talk yes. about. A woman in the business. How do you advocate? Yes. That's it. Don't let someone understate your title. Exactly. Say what it is. Is that queen of the universe? You should just say, best actor who's the executive producer and creator of Quantico. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. And also owns ABC. But Beth uh, also wrote and directed a wonderful movie called Normal Adolescent Behavior. Has worked on a bunch of other shows. And uh, beyond that is um, a true connector of people and is one of the most culturally astute uh, people that I know. And um, I'm really excited to get to talk to you because I rarely have people on the show who work on shows but haven't created the show. People who are just – who are working – writers in the business of course yeah and also uh it i've noticed this but it had been brought to my attention by uh maria popova that um although i'm a, a strong and huge advocate for women's rights you're I, a feminist i am oh no she no one's questioning yeah. my, I mean, you can, my like, feminist cred put, put, yeah but um but like 85 percent of my guests are men on this podcast and a lot of that has to do with the way that the business yeah. is, but but also I, it's really important, especially now in the world, yes. like <laughs> to just really have many more women on the show. Oh, I want to thank Maria for pointing that out to me, and um, I'm really glad to have you, well, thank on you. the show. And I want to talk about a bunch of stuff, but I want to start with, I saw a status on Facebook the yes. other day. Where you said that uh, you were playing music and your neighbor told you. I was just telling these guys. To turn it down. Yes. And you wrote, um, I still got still it. Still got it. it. It really hit me because a lot of what I want to talk about. First of all, what music were you playing? Kick It by Tribe Called Quest. It's my kid's favorite song. Well, it's one of the great songs of all time. <laughs> so he's sitting. We can swear, right? We're Say good, anything right, you fucking want. So he's sitting on the toilet taking a shit. What time is this? It's 8 o'clock at night. So it's not that late. That's Excuse not late to me, be I live banging. In New York City. That is not late to be bumping tribe. I don't know who this fucking dipshit is. But anyway, so he's sitting there. And I, as he's pooping, he's going, can I kick it? Yes, I can. Can I kick it? Yes, I can. So we have to turn the song on because... Clearly, you have to turn the song on. And I get here like, pound, pound, pound. And this guy's like, and I even, I knew instantly, I was like, oh, he wants me to turn it down. Also, my husband has a concert disease where he can't hear anything because he's been to so many Too shows many, yeah. and he doesn't put the earplugs in because apparently he doesn't. So yeah, so we listened to the music very loud and I did turn it down. But then I proceeded to play a lot of New Order because I feel like the undercurrent can still play, like it still vibrates a little. Oh yeah, you yeah, can yeah. turn down yeah, like a d- 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 sound, just yeah. like the little bass. Yeah, so you stop. still had to agitate. Oh yeah, I you, can't stop. <laughs> is your neighbor like really douchey? Here's the thing: is I don't know who he is because I am terrible with the people in my building. Most of them are. I live in a, an old tenement building on 
uh, like in the West Village. I don't yeah. need to give you my address. Yeah. Nobody come visit me. Trust me, it's not a nice building. Um, but they, it's the one of the younger people in the building. It's either like 20 year old, uh, like finance bros or like 90 year old people that smoke a lot of weed. Right. And That's so you like didn't know two, which one it was. I don't was know who it was. It was just bang, 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 bang. And then I just But turned you turned the music down. I did. I turned it down. I know. I'm sorry. But, but, I could have fought, but I was like, eh. No, there are t- I, no at, at, at your age, I think with the kid, like, yeah. um, just karmically turn the music down. Turn the music down. Like, uh, because it's probably the right thing to do. But uh, I was just thinking about like the, when you're in a hotel, how difficult that whole thing is. Oh my God. To figure out like when they're having a party in the hotel next right. to you. You don't want to be the old person no. saying, turn it down, but you really need your sleep. At the same time, I also have that thing like from, remember from LA story when they're having sex and they're like fucking wall to wall. And it's like, because you can hear the other person, you feel like, like I am now obliged to wake up my partner and be like, babe, I'm sorry. These people are having way too much fun. We got to show them how it's like, you cannot, you cannot let that card go. That's me. So I'm like, I have both the let's turn the music down and be polite people, but also like, fuck you. You can't have more fun than me. Right. I'm doing it. Yes. But, but I also, I, what, what it made me think about is the, the balancing act that a lot of people who are started out wanting to be pure artists or yes. thought of themselves that way have to do, which is this balancing act between being a pure artist and being responsible. And I, I've heard you engage in this conversation a lot, which is about trying to figure out. And I, and, and I know for you, it ties into questions of like privilege and what one, absolutely what one can sort of how one can define oneself yeah. is something you think about. And you also think about where and when and what compromises to make. Yes. So, Somebody who starts out wanting to make independent films and is, you know, on a big hit show, writing, but but not writing their own not right, yeah. thing, has thought about this. So Absolutely. I wonder how you th- how do you sort of break all that stuff down down for yourself in terms of I mean yeah in terms of like uh, balancing the that you want to take care of Bash and contribute and do all that stuff and you're an artist. So yes. how do you balance those needs in yourself? in figuring out what you want to do. I have the benefit of, I'm blessed with the knowledge of what it is to, to try to be an artist because what happened was I made this movie and then I went to director jail for a while because I, as is clear as anyone who knows me will tell you have no edit button when it comes to certain things. And I was being told by rooms full of dudes that I had to change the movie and change the title and re-edit it and do this. And I just, I have a low tolerance for people whose job it is to do marketing and finance and, and international sales telling me how to tell a story. I'm okay with you telling me how to sell a movie, but you can't tell me how to tell a story. I know how to tell a story. You know how to do your job. It's fine. I, I don't walk up to construction workers and tell them where to put berms. So why don't you not come up to me and tell me how to tell a story? But also I was, I made a movie very young. I made a movie when I was still in school and that was a big mistake. I shouldn't, don't make a move. Don't make your first movie unless you're surrounded by a lot of people who are going to protect you. And when you're 28 years old, it's just a bad idea. I was a child. I was just so young. I was so, so young. And so I had that heady sense that I could do anything and no one could touch me. I was, I had no money. So I wasn't going to lose any money. I had parents who had money. So I had the privilege of knowing if everything got fucked up, I could go home. You could eat and stay with your parents. And I had a boyfriend who was working and could support me. So I was so privileged and then I got sent to director jail and couldn't do anything. Literally couldn't do it. Like couldn't get a job, 
couldn't get a meeting. I would get meetings and you would, I would realize I was the woman they were meeting and did not hire. Like you, I just couldn't. So wait, I, I want to unpack that for yeah. a second. So <laughs> are you conscious of, so you were, you're aware of the fact, oh, people want to feel good about themselves or tell their bosses yeah. that they've done their, what they, they've checked everything off the list and you felt you were sort of part oh, of our, a rote meeting series that oh, was yeah. happening? Oh yeah. You know, you go into the, and it may have changed because obviously the movie business has changed enormously over the past 10 years you're talking i've been working for 10 years in the business and or a little bit over 10 years and it's been that like that the narrative has changed slightly because movies are becoming smaller and tv is becoming bigger so it just it's the narrative has changed i mean the movie industry the movie industry smaller. Has movies are becoming yeah, bigger yes, like they're making exactly. only a few the bigger industry movies. has contracted enormously whereas television has expanded enormously so you and that doesn't happen in tv as much because tv is a different beast um, because you're painting with other artists, which is the showrunner's job is to take a bunch of artists and paint with them as opposed to an indie film where you are the painter, you are the paint, you are everything, which is really good for someone with a big ego like me, which I would completely. With the own. movie thing is the movie thing. Saying. Oh yeah. No, I mean, you want to have a big ego if you do this job and I think it's important to have an ego and ambition and all those things. So to go back, the idea is basically you would go in these meetings and I would know they maybe met me. There weren't that many, there aren't that many women working in indie film that want to do, you know, another movie and don't want to do their own movie. So I was going out for jobs for hire. That someone else wrote. That someone else wrote or that I was going to rewrite. And I would get called in and I actually got the the experience of being called in twice because they had forgotten that they had meet, met me. So Did they that really called in again. You? Yeah. They, and they actually ended up making the movie. And it was a high, I just got, because it was, I made a high school movie. It was only high school movies, which are terrible to try to get financing for because nobody wants to make them because the teenagers aren't stars. And the only reason we got our movie made is just a bunch of like moments that. Well, you wrote a, I've read that script and seen the movie. I mean, you wrote a really good script. That was, I thank you. And I wrote a, I wrote a script that was entirely mine and I wanted to direct it. And then I got to direct it because nobody else wanted to make that movie and no one else had the vision for it, which was a great lesson for me, but then to then get dumped in the movie industry. So then I, I went to jail for a while, movie jail, not real jail. Um, it's yeah, totally, I was yeah, going to say, I want to, I want to back up. So, so you, you you, you make this movie and when you're making one of these independent movies, um, often on set, you can kind of make the movie you want to make. Cause they don't, if you're the director, you mm-hmm. have, that's when you have the most power. It's very hard mm-hmm. for them to actually, stop you once the thing is rolling yes. once your past prep yes. i mean they might shut your day down but probably yeah. you're going to be able to work through that and on a 19 day movie what are they going to do right like really you're making your yeah. movie but when you get to you do your director's cut and then show it to them mm-hmm. and you don't have final cut on the film it becomes uh it it can become thorny yes and what happened is i my now husband then boyfriend was the editor so we locked ourselves in a room and basically sort of fell madly in love with each other, working together and fighting. And because that's what you do is you really find someone that you can like argue with. And, you know, with your editor, you have to fight for things and against things and you have to let them show you things and be open, but also be st- strident about other things. And it's it's a dialogue between you and your editor. No, I think you're describing a marriage. And, you're and a marriage that's what we realize is... I was going to say, I don't have that relationship <laughs> with my editors, really, but... <laughs> But what we did realize after that is like, oh, we could get married now because we know each other and we know That's perfect. we've yeah. seen all the dirty, dark grossness that we can both be. We can see who we are in a room and we can respect each other and work work it out. We can work it out. We can fight and work it out. And then we sold the movie and 
New Line that bought the movie, they just had a different vision. They just wanted to make a DVD cover because it was in the waning days of DVDs when you could actually make money on a DVD, which is, I don't, does anyone own them anymore? I only own the Miyazaki movies for my kid. That's I literally say, all I have. I have a bunch of Criterion DVDs <laughs> Criterion, that I still have. And now you can stream them in sort of shitty quality. But it is like that was what happened. And so you end up serving a different master. And because you took somebody else's money to make your movie and they're making their money back selling the movie, that's the job. So you deliver somebody else's film. All of a sudden, this thing that was yours, you deliver. That was precious and like you... And I didn't handle it well. I will be very honest. Like it was not... It's not something where I've met other directors who've handled it better. Well, you're, and a, I've strong, to, well, yeah. you're a strong person strong who has... Strong is a good word. <laughs> no, you're a strong person who has your... When, when you've made a distinction about the world, like you, you've thought it through and then that's the way you yeah. feel about yes. it. And not that you don't take in more information. Yeah. Y- you do. But like when you have your opinion, you're yes. strong in it. I mean, do you feel, did you feel being a woman? Because you said you're in a room with a bunch of dudes. Like, were you feeling condescended to or were you feeling um i didn't were you understand it at the time i really didn't like again like i i can't express how emotionally young i was when it happened i was just a i was a kid really in every way like artistically and as a because i started in theater and came to film very a little bit well, later yeah, so let's let's back up then um and talk about yes your, your, how you how this you became an, an artist uh, as someone who does this and then we'll get there so like you grew up the daughter of a doctor and a scientist yes which doesn't and a crazy feminist. My mom was a crazed, uh, true blue feminist. I got our bodies ourselves and this book called The Women, which is a oral history of the four most important women in feminism. I think when I was like nine. So f- feminist, you know, I wore ERA buttons to school and not even knowing what it means. Where'd you grow up? In uh, Ohio and Connecticut. So very suburban. And, but really, um, working my, 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 my mom went back to work when I was three weeks old. She really had, a, she had a career. It was not a job. She was someone who was committed and whose identity was very tied to her career and not as tied to her children. And that was a really beautiful thing to be raised by because you end up realizing that you can have your own identity. It's not that she didn't, I mean, she loved us enormously and, and raised us with abs, with energy and passion, but, we were not her identity. And that meant we had to have our own identity. And that, that was the biggest gift she gave me as a parent is to say, you're not me. And I, you don't owe me anything in your identity. You're your own person. It's how I, it's, it's how you deal with your kids, which is they're your kids, but they're their own people. Yeah, and you got to so, start there. Yeah. You have to just look at everything through the prism yeah. of what's best only just what's best for them. For them. Yes, really, not for you. And it's so hard. Have, I mean, it's so difficult to <laughs> do you because wanna... your ego is so tied up in yes. them because you, you know, your love for them. Yes. You want what's best for them. Yes. And you, but you really have to separate what's best for them. And what is it that gives you some endorphin rush? Yes. And you have to separate that. Oh my God. It's you, like you go to school, you apply to schools and you're like, oh, you got into the good school, but it's not good. We just had this. We got into this great school in New York. And I was like, he's going to suffer there. But a little part of me is like, but I got into the good school. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, as long as you, I, I, I say, as long as if if somebody parents with some intention, they've yes. already they're like so many people don't have the time in their lives even to think about it. That's one of the things yeah. that I think I'm the, been the most sort of lucky about. It's just that Amy and I, because because we work doing things that we love, because I've been fortunate to be successful. Like I've had the time to think about parenting in yeah. a way that 
is a, an incredible luxury. It is. And I think you when you have two parents or one parent or four parents, however many parents you have who have lives that they enjoy, even if they're difficult and full of strife, which all of our lives are, and your kid sees that, it becomes part of their identity and then they strive for that. And so that their ego is the thing that you're raising. I just want to raise a kid that has, and I don't mean ego, like I want to be a star, but like that center self, you just want his self to be, I want my kid's self to be true and, and have a direction and for him to know it and for him to follow it, which is really what an artist does, but it's also what a scientist does. It's also what, you know, my mom looked at science like art, which is you have an idea you, it sits in your brain, you think about it, you imagine it, you give yourself space, you question it, you say it out loud, you challenge it, you ask other people to challenge it, and then you try it. And that's how science works. It's not a, it's an art form. Science is an art form. It's an art form with rules, the same as ours is, but it's an art form. And that's, so I really learned it from her. And she was also a um, secret writer. And really wanted to be a writer. So I also became a writer because it was what she wanted to do when she grew up. Yeah. Wait, I have so many questions about what you just said. (laughs) It's awesome. Like, so were your dinner table conversations, I mean, the thing you just talked about, the way your mother went about prosecuting her job. Yeah. And I know you've written about your mom a lot and yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff and yeah. very and lost your mom too yes, young. Yes, lost my that, mom to cancer. That, all that stuff. But the irony of having an oncologist dad does not yeah, it's fun. It's good. You can't right. really still, put that you, in a TV show. No, still, you lost your mom. To, and I know yeah. what she meant to you, but were you spoken to like an adult at an early age in a way and and in in enlisted in these conversations? I, it's, we grew up, so my mom's first jobs, first research jobs and first work was, she's an immunologist, so a lot of it had to do with AIDS. So we grew up, you know, late 70s, 80s. That was my dinner table. So it was, what is this disease? How is it affecting people? How can we disseminate it? What is, you know, what are all these scientists doing? And the scientists would come to your table and they would talk about it. But it was really about what did this paper say? Well, I challenged that assumption. Well, what does this paper say? And there was no, nobody asked us our opinion on our lives. But if you could speak up and ask a question, you were in the, you were at the table. So for me, it was the challenge of, can I be at the table? Can I, and there was no TV. What do you mean there was no TV? No TV in our house. You grew up with not. No, we no. had TV. So we had TV. My parents had cable TV in their room. but And we were latchkey kids, which I guess, do people still do that? Yeah. yeah. Is that allowed now? Like, it's not illegal, right? Because we were latchkey kids. We walked home every day and let ourselves in. And from I mean, some three people, yes, people, six, there are people still definitely yeah. live like that. Yeah, you can't yes. call Child Protective Services on me now because I'm a grown up. So, right. Fuck it. Uh, I was a latchkey kid. So we would come From home. like what age? Um, third you and your grade, sis- second, you and your, my, my you little and your, sister, were, sister were only one grade apart. Right. Um, second grade, I guess. Second, second, third grade, we'd walk the three blocks home. We would turn on the TV and we would get a bowl of ice and put it on the back of the TV. So my dad, when he would come home, would put his hand on the back of the television to make sure it wasn't hot because tube television. And if it wasn't hot, then we were okay. So we had a, we had a system. So we you knew how to cool off the TV? Oh my God, totally. And the only TV we were allowed to watch was Sunday. And that was like Muppet Show and... Not Davy and Goliath. Please tell me you weren't watching Davy no, and no, Goliath. No, 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 no. No, when we were kids, it was... I, they're great. Right. You know, it's like you're talking about MTV. Like, all we did was watch MTV. It was like... Because I watched, but... I watched a lot of Davy and Goliath before I realized that it was proselytizing. Oh. 
no, I didn't was, realize it was a show that was proselytizing. No, it was a lot of it was it was the, the 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 astronaut and the MTV and the flashing yeah, yeah, sure. and, and uh, loader yes. and I you know I, we just grew up on MTV. That was the only thing in our yeah. Housing. You're a generation younger than I am. So, uh, so but that was the thing. That was what oh, wait. We so did. how would you how would you make sure he didn't know the TV was that you'd watch the TV? We would the ice. So you put the 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 you put a, put a dish towel on and a bowl of ice, and we would have some and like you knew what time they were coming home. So you would be watching for the driveway, and then they, he would pull in the driveway. You turn off the TV. You'd put the ice away. You put the bowl away. I don't. I think my dad still has no idea. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he has no idea that we did this. That you were scamming TV? Oh my God, scamming so much TV. And then what ended up happening is my, the reason I really love television is my mom would let me watch TV with her on, so you're talking like late 80s, like the prime China Beach 30 something years. And that's my formative television. Those two shows are like, the shows for me. Right. And my so-called life. Those those three. So fun. The late 80s was the time that the, that I watched the least television in my life, I think, because I graduated college in 88 and I was working and, you know, I was in the yeah. music business. So, like, I was out yeah. all night, every night. Yeah, you're not at home. There was just no... I basically yeah. watched NYPD Blue was the only television show oh, that I watched. It's... And I got to say, it's funny, we were Which just I guess talking maybe... About, I don't know what years that was. Maybe that was like probably 91, maybe, actually. Yeah, that's early 90s. Yeah. Early 90s, I think. But yeah. like 30-something ER... 30-something ER, China Beach, My So-Called Life. You're talking about four shows that literally you could turn on right now. I've been yeah. re-watching ER for... I did watch reason. ER. No, no, I watched ER. I did watch that show, but I think that was 90s, 90s. That was 90s, 90s. But I did China watch Beach is perfect. That. China Beach is a perfect show. I don't know how. I've never seen even an episode. You, I haven't seen even a scene. Everything about it. And it's so female driven. It's so beautiful. John Sackett Young. I don't know. Like, I don't know why people don't talk about how great that show was. It won all the oh, Emmys. Oh, 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 I'll tell you that. I'll watch it. The, the 80s show. Sorry. I don't think I've mentioned this yeah, show yeah. enough. On the, I don't think I've mentioned this enough on the podcast. But absolutely. Because like, I always talk about the things that are um, the, the, the things that made me want to do this for my life. Or yeah. the, the shows that meant that much to me. But the the most to me, but Wise Guy, which was when I was still in college, right. that was like 86, 87. So Wise Guy, which was the show that had these arcs and Kevin Spacey became famous from this show. He played a character called Mel Prophet. That was the last show that I watched. I watched Wise Guy and then nothing until the 90s, essentially. That's amazing. I movies, remember, yeah. just movies. But that was movies, my TV show, right. Wise Guy. But you would have been like in junior high school. Well, so. and it's also like, so it was all TV and then I went to college and it was all, then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, movies. And theater. And so then it just became like, that was like well, the thing right, came, So, but yeah. when you were a kid, were you, I'm always interested in people who become writers, what they were like and like sort of the, how they interacted socially. So you're obviously, your childhood was different than the other, a lot of the other yeah. kids. So what, were you an a, oddball or were you a cool, like were I you was cool? A, I was a weirdo. I mean, I've been a weirdo my whole life. We, I think we all are a little bit weird, but um, I was a weirdo until sophomore year in high school and then i was a bad kid for a few years i i went what does that mean a bad i was kid? like a nerd i was the nerdy kid who like asked for extra homework and didn't like i had very and then i figured out that i had boobs and that boys liked those and then for three years i just was a parent's nightmare and actually when i had was pregnant i was like please be a boy please be a boy because if i'm a girl i get a girl i'm You're so the fucked. revenge I'm is so gonna fucked. happen you right. just know that's the way karma works out i'm probably gonna still get fucked over by it but at least no one can come home pregnant 
I, I was bad. I was, let's just say I was bad. There were police and there were drugs and there were boys and I was making terrible decisions and doing all the drugs. The good news is, <laughs> is that by the time I got to college, it was done. I just did three hard, dumb years. And did your parents notice? Oh, right my away. God. Like quickly? Oh, God. And what's so funny is you think you're so smart. Like, because I was also. Well, because you young. figured out the ice and TV thing. So oh, you could probably God. cover you think this. You're like up. a fucking genius. You're like, I'm going to come home, like, just like rolling hard and boy, hickeys. And like, and right. my parents are going to have no idea what I was doing and reeking of booze and uh, sneak upstairs. And my parents knew the whole time. And they're. To their credit, and I, I don't know what I would have done had I been presented with me. To their credit, their rule was as long as you are safe and you don't drive and right. you don't get caught, we can't really stop you. Um, Interesting. That we led you- can sort of guide you, but we can't. The more we can try to control you, the less controllable I mean, you'll be. Interesting. That kind of let you burn through it in yeah. a way more quickly than if they were putting up a certain kind of yeah. resistance. I think I might have stepped in a little sooner on a couple things, but I'm glad, I'm glad I did. I mean, look, I look back and I'm like, listen, I'm glad I'm alive and nobody, I didn't die and nobody assaulted me. I got, I got lucky. You've no, I mean, like you think about it now. I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a fucking idiot. Well, we all do certain oh dumb things God, when we're young. So dumb. So dumb. But you know, well, I will say that people didn't, weren't really aware in the same ways yeah. na- that you yeah. are now of the risky. I mean, I would, I mean, just think about it. Like, um, we would ride our bicycles Oh, yeah. uh, everywhere. So even that's like hard to imagine letting your seven year old just go, all right, I'll see in three hours oh, and just God. ride their bike wherever they want. Well, I mean, I would just ride my bike as far as I could go that was, alone yes. with no phone and oh, yeah. no anything. No, it was until I was in high school, it was put a book in my back pocket, ride my bike as far away as I could and read in a corner in the woods somewhere. That was my whole, like I had a couple friends that we would do the same thing. We'd all ride our bikes. What were you reading? Books. Uh, everything. I have a, I have a voracious appetite and I'm blessed with being able to read it at lightning speed. So it was a lot of Stephen King. It was a lot of, I think Essie Hinton was the first, The Outsiders was the first novel. Do you I communicate read. with her I, on, on Twitter, Twitter? I'm a little stocky. So I try to like, I try to simmer it down. It's like Amy Mann. She, after now you introduced me to Amy Mann for 10 seconds. That was seconds. one of my favorite things ever. Yeah. It's 10 seconds. I'm like, do I just remind her every day that she kind of met me and we know each other? No, probably not. That's one um, of the great things about, I mean, about <laughs> like that was really, yes. Yeah, so when I had Amy Mann on the thing, I called Shax and I was like, cause she was working nearby and I knew. And I was like, you can come. I'm come a over dork. And say hello. I'm a dork. There are people that I'm a yeah. dork about. There are people that her I new don't album care. is like her best her album, album since whatever. It's incredible. What's amazing too is that this, and no, this is total sidebar, but that she decides to come in the middle of a song and let you think about what the beginning of the song could be is like a lesson in editing that like and musical editing and how you think about music. Like so a couple of those songs are just like they're they're pieces but they're fully it's formed the it's the craziest I, thing I know this I, album i it's so rare i mean i think she's 56 years old to do a work of art like that yeah at that age yeah and and i mean the, the album whatever is one of the great albums in my lifetime and sh- i think this album is every bit it's yeah. equal which is a, a crazy thing but uh, so sorry i'm a sidebar no, that's queen. great sorry <laughs> no, I was, well, I was asking about Essie Hinton, yes. which is who's on Twitter. And it kind of freaks out. Like, she and I know each other now on Twitter. We communicate. Yeah, yeah. But it's crazy that she's on there. So have you communicated with her? I have a little bit. Like we've like, I've been like, I tweet to her and she'll tweet back every once in a while. But like, I don't, for me, like that's a precious, like 
Oh, I, I couldn't sure agree I could. with you more. The Outsiders changed all of it our changed, lives. Yeah, the it was book, the, not the movie. The book, me. the movie for me was a lesson in filmmaking later, and I still own the movie and watch the movie. And yeah. for me, like a movie in scope like that, in cinema scope like that, is like you can't. It's a great lesson in how to shoot a film. Um, but the book for me was the first time I remember reading a book and forgetting the world. It's got that off switch moment. I agree. And that's that. So it was a lot of that. And it was a lot of like just whatever was around. So I, lot, I read a lot of books I wasn't probably wasn't supposed to read. I read all the Judy Bloom books. Then I read all the Judy Bloom adult books and every, all the, um, John Updike that was on my parents' shelf. I just, I can't, I have like an addiction. So I'll just take a book and read it in a day. And, and so for me, it was just constant input of words and language, which was great. But Stephen King was huge. That was like to the me, big, To me yeah. too. No, to me that too. Was like, I mean, that was, um, I read every single one yeah. up until to- through Tommy Knockers, I read every single one. Um, I, I have to say I got a hundred pages into Mercedes man and stopped because I felt the novel was over and I, and I have to go back. Like I've just, de- I decided I, where the novel was ending. I, I don't read them as, as, uh, I, I, the last one I read was, uh, 11, mm. you know, uh, 2360. That's beautiful. That's title. a beautiful piece of um, writing. He still has more talent to put in putting a sentence together than anyone working for me. Like for me, he knows how to make a sentence work that I said that with a terrible sentence structure, his ability to make a sentence work beautifully without being obvious is phenomenal. No, he's a, one of the, you know, yeah. he's a great, a great master and uh, informed the storytelling, yeah. informed the way generations of people oh, yeah. told stories. But so when you were doing all this reading, did did you think to yourself, I'm going to do this? No. Because remember- what was your, pa- like, what were you thinking? What did Beth Schachter oh, at would- that time think she was going to be doing with her Probably life? like a lawyer or a politician oh, really? or somebody that like lots of writing and arguing clearly. Um, and then I got to high school and a couple things happened. One was, um, we had, I had an amazing theater teacher, a guy named Dick Wheeler, who runs a program called Odd Fellows Playhouse in Connecticut that does a lot of puppetry. When and was this? At what point in, in Connecticut? I was, I was in high school, in right. sophomore high school. And I met, he was our theater teacher and he were, uh, came from Bread and Puppet, which is this incredible program in Vermont that does these huge puppets and he was doing Greek tragedies and we did Antigone and that was life-changing for me. And then, um, I read, I started reading eighties lit. Like I found there was that weird thing in the nineties where eighties lit kind of came back in. Like so it was what? Like Tamajanowitz, Tamajanowitz and, 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 and Jay McInerney. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, Tamajanowitz and Jay McInerney, I was like, huh? something's here. Like, I don't know what this is, but this is a voice and it's a story. And I recognize all the people and I recognized everybody in less than zero. So I, I knew all those people. So for me that had like a, something was happening there. And then I went to Kenyon and I got cast the first day in a play. And by that time I was like college in college, by the time I was a freshman in college, I was like, something's here and I don't know what it is. So I'm just going to like play in the sandbox and not get a degree in anything I told my parents I was going to get a degree in. Right. So I got a degree in theater and religion because they had the best books. Religion had the best books. Like, that's what I'll say about if you if you want to major in something where you read the best stuff, major in religion. The, the best writing. Yeah. Because you're reading. I mean, I was an English yeah. major. The yeah. pretty good books in that, too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like know, the best. Yes. If you're going to read nonfiction, then so, you know, it was theater. And, and that was really it for me. As I, and then I moved to New York 
the second I graduated. Yeah, I want to ask you about the New York years because I've you've written <laughs> to me about I've read you talk about the New York years, which I know were crazy. They were mud club and so forth. Yeah, but, um, I was a bad kid, and then I got to New York and had no money. And I mean, I, it's funny because I say that, but here's the truth: my parents, my grandparents, moved here, uh, emigrated here in the early 1900s. They were very successful. My dad's parents, they were very successful. My grandfather emigrated. My grandmother was second generation, I should say. They were very successful. Um, they owned an apartment on Ninth University, which we still own. So for me, moving into New York was free. And without that, nothing would have happened. I am the privilege and the, the shoulders I stand on I cannot tell you yeah, how. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say it. I mean, it is true. There's nothing more. I, I My parents didn't give me any money, but they gave me a place to live rent-free, and that was all I needed to make it happen. you didn't have to pay for college. I didn't have to pay for college. Yeah, Those I always talk things, about that's a gigantic, that is a, an enormous advantage in life. I obviously had the same advantage. Yeah. And like, uh, I mean, I got lucky enough that I could, because of, you know, I had yeah. success when I was very young. So I was able to buy an apartment, but like right out of college, cause I had a free thing happen to me. But my, the fact that I got free college, yeah, I always think about it. I think about it so often because it guided my, the fact that I had no debt yeah. allowed me to just say, well, I'm going to do what I want in yeah. life. Like I'm going to work my ass off. And I tried a lot of different things before I figured out who I was at 30. I, um, and I always worked so hard and rigorously, but I didn't have this monkey. On, I didn't have this yeah. thing that I had to satisfy. And that is a giant separator. It's a huge, and it's, it's, if we could give everyone that, I would be so happy. I'd be so, you do what you want with my taxes, like give everybody a college education. It's the ability to go to school and just think about school and just think yeah, about your brain. Not have to take a job. Like, so I was at school and obviously I was doing other things. I was producing music. I yeah. was doing other stuff. But to have those four years to, to do that without thinking about having debt. And just thinking uh, about thinking and becoming a critical thinker is if everyone could just get that opportunity, I'd be so happy. It's just, it's, I agree. it's a blessing. And I, I, I am so grateful and I'm so aware of what that does to someone and what that gives you. And I will say there is something I'm circling way ahead, but go. when you, when you go into a writer's room, the people that are often there are people that have had that advantage. And that is one of the reasons that I like when rooms don't reach out to people that are a little bit different. When they do reach when out. When they do reach out and they have a different voice in there because we do homogenize based on a, a level of education. And it's it's a homo- it's a homo- homogenizing factor that I think changes the way television is written. Yeah. You know, there's a shared basket of cultural references yeah. that you have if you were able to go to certain schools, read certain books. Yeah. Get exposed to certain music, culture. It, I, there's this fantastic episode of Reply All where they talk to uh, somebody at, I think, who worked at Google, an engineer. He was like one of the only African-American uh, engineers at Google. And then he st- went on this mission and, and they talk about the value of diversity, the yeah. value of... So instead of framing it as let's do the nice paternalistic thing for the person who's the outsider and didn't have the advantage, what they talk about is the the, lim- the incredibly uh, uh, limiting factor mm-hmm. of a, a bunch of people having the, sh- the same references, the same experiences. And in fact, you're not doing... It's not... The way to think about it isn't I'm doing a nice thing for these people. Yeah. What I think about it is that entire other set of beliefs, references, experiences, Absolutely. 
benefits the whole in an enormous way. And, that, and our yeah. discomfort with it as a culture, absolutely, uh, our discomfort with with the fact that it is something that if we could just, uh, it, our, our discomfort leads us to, as you say, these homogeneous yeah. work. Uh, working environments and people with whom we work. And in fact, it limits us tremendously. Well, and you take someone like, to me, like Eric Heiser is a perfect example. There's a guy who is- He wrote a rival. He wrote a rival. We know him. He's clearly a brilliant human being who didn't go to college and got a job and worked in aerospace and figured out what he wanted to be. And his experience and his way of working through the world is so evident to me in that movie that I went back because I, I know Eric and I know, uh, you know, I've hung out with him and that's, but we talked a little bit about his uh, growing up and not going to college the last time I saw him. And I went back and watched the movie. And what you realize is without that experience of being slightly other intellectually above and yet not above of, and yet not of, he never would have been able to write that character that beautifully written female character with the kind of passion that he did it really is specificity again, like, and, and passion. specificity it's my a, favorite movie of last year for truly, sure for me that was my favorite movie truly and and the talent that it takes is informed by your experience and that's part of why we well, like he's, writers he's rooms. he's uh promised to come on the podcast the next time he comes come on, through new york yes which i think is going to be in bring in, in june so we've <laughs> yes i love her too yes. but uh my favorite whiskey friends he has said uh that he'll come on the pod and i'm um i'm sure that he that he will i want to go back to one thing which is yes. you quickly mentioned the holy trinity of uh mid-80s writers tamar uh. janowitz freddie nelson jay McInerney, and I, I would say i'm not sure all those books last but a friend of mine just texted me three weeks ago and said um hey a friend who didn't come from comes from an entirely different cultural background than than uh we do and a whole different set of references a, a friend who's a, a, a an evangelical christian was, uh, oh, wow. was raised that way and is that way still and wrote me and he was like hey um i just read bright lights big city what do you think of it and uh, I wrote back, like, that book is still a masterpiece. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I'm blown away by yeah. it. I'm, I, and, and I would say, if you're listening to this and you're younger than I, you know, I am, uh, and you, you're like, oh, that sounds like this moldy 80s thing. It's not. That book's like a masterpiece and really worth reading. I think it's the, the, the best of all those things I think it that is were written too. at that time. The other one, the one that I really wonder if it holds up, and I was actually thinking about getting it again, is uh, Shampoo Planet, Copeland. I just don't know, Douglas Copeland. Does that still? I don't know. It's funny. Those books were just of a moment. I know that um, the, was, the next, like the the next little one of those was um, Mystery of Pitts, Mysteries of Pittsburgh, Mystery of Pittsburgh, that and, was huge and for Emperor me. of the Air, the Ethan oh, Kanan yeah. book, and the Ethan Kanan, and Ethan Pam Houston's book. They all came out kind of in the next couple of years. Yeah, Cowboys Are My Weakness. Those books and um, those all I think. But that that hold moment up. in time in the nineties, Jesus' Son still holds oh, up. Oh, Jesus' Son is so. If good. people haven't read Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son, you got to oh, read that. book. And then too. go see the movie because. It's a beautiful movie. The movie's really good. It's the not. The, it's not equal, the same. It's not the equal of the. No, it's not the same. Uh, but it's it's it's, the, it's got yeah. one of the one of my favorite performances in the world. Um, Crude Billy Crudup. Oh yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous. But yeah, no, those those books, that whole moment where books, and again, I I'm sure had I been ten years older or ten years younger, it'd have been a different set of books. But these books that felt like I could know these people and I could be in their world, but I was also diving into an entire time and place was just 
Yeah, no, crazy. I mean, it was just, it was huge for me. Right, that was really, really huge so, for me. So you come, to, you go to college, you do theater. Yes. You think to yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in the theater. Oh, yeah. No, I was like, I'm going to go make theater. Like, theater, theater. Like, R-E theater. Yeah, no. I, like, yeah. I wasn't going to make, like, I wasn't going to go to Broadway. I went. And no, you like, were, like, going to be, like, no, Brecht is too mainstream. Oh, 100%. My yeah. big project when I came. So embarrassing. My big project that I came when I came to New York is that I wanted to do an adaptation, a high school adaptation of Antigone using football players. And I wanted to do an entire production of Glengarry Glen Ross with 12 year old boys. Yeah, Those well, are people my two have big tried, you know, people have tried the mammoth thing, but the he won't allow people. Kids. Yeah, no, he won't. He won't allow people to switch the, the genders. I guess yeah. you could do it just playing those characters. You could have a woman. He couldn't stop you from having a. Well, I guess you can give you the. I don't know how that licensing thing yeah, works. I just thought like. To have a twelve, to have twelve, to have kids do Glengarry Glen Ross would just be the best thing ever because it's so. The point is that they're children, so if you just had, I mean, again, I was twenty. It's still funny. So though that would have been the it, best. It I mean, someone bit. should have done that in Rush. I mean, in Rushmore, yeah. that would have been a great <laughs> it been one a of those piece. Exactly. little little bits. But but so how does it happen? You you come here. There's there's a whole other thing I wanted to ask you about, which I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to yes. stop for a second and, and like detour because. As you're talking about all this stuff and the way you apprehend these cultural things, books, movies, yeah. I know we could do this about art too. Yeah. One of the things that your friends, the big benefits of being your friend is we get to take advantage of the fact that like you have the best taste in everything. <laughs> so I'm, but what I'm really interested in is how did, how did you develop like your cultural taste buds? Like was it conscious? Was there some practice that you had? Like some people, you know, go through and they're like, okay, well, I'm going to go learn about impressionist art now and really think about it and sort of get my opinion. Like, how did you form this prism through which, because you are the person that someone will call for like, hey, what's the best small hotel in San Francisco? But right. also like, hey, what's your favorite record that came out in 2004? Right. And I'm, I, you know, people, I've seen many people ask you like, I need to buy a gift for someone. I know you don't know them, but here's what I'm thinking of. And then right. you always know exactly the right gift. Like it's an amazing skill set you have to of understanding what's great in all these different sort of cultural forms. And I, it's obviously something that matters to you. It does. It's not a coincidence. No. So how did that all I'm like? How'd you develop vampire. all that? I'm a vampire. You just, I, yeah. No sleep. That's no, it. no, no, no. It's no. I literally, I suck at all. everybody that I come in contact with, I steal from. I, I'm a, th a, a thief is a better word for it. I'm right. a thief. Like right now, our showrunner and show creator, Josh Safran, has the best musical taste in the world. For And he does. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of music, which means every day I get a new piece of music from our music supervisor. Which means I am Wait, more encyclopedic about music than I am. Oh my god! Well, more than me, maybe because Broadway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Broadway. Sure. So, so and because I feel challenged right I know, now. You should. You should. I'm you a little should uncomfortable. A I'm a little okay. bit uncomfortable. I I still I would still come to you for like you know rock and roll like okay I feel better. Feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like the fact that I can just basically steal all this like I missed Margaret Glaspie. You did? I miss Margaret Glass. I didn't math. Uh, see? I didn't see? I did not miss her at all. I missed it. So you know, sometimes you just miss an artist and they Ugh. just they go right by you. So I didn't know. So a couple weeks ago he was like, How do you not know Margaret Glassby? Now it's the only thing I listen to. So it's like I'm a I'm a thief, A. Right. B, um, I have probably I don't know if I don't think it's ADD. I just I require a lot of input at all times. As you can tell. But you also, but I think the thing I'm asking about is so, okay, I understand the, so like a lot I'm of people hoard, yes. but this is something else. I'm uh, a you cultural have this hoarder. Incredibly, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, okay. 
But, but um, I also, you're also, it's interesting, right? Because you're not somebody who uh, doesn't understand the things that she's great at or, or is not willing to talk about it. But you're, this area, you're, you're being modest. modest. But, the, but the thing, yeah, because here's the thing. What I'm really interested in is how you develop this critical faculty you have, which is you are able to, when you do all that hoarding and listening and watching and thinking about, you do separate the weed from the fucking chaff. Like you're really good at going, this is good and this is bad. I guess here's what I will say is I stopped, this is going to sound so pretentious. I stopped questioning why I liked something and just started liking things. And I, I did that early enough. And I think that's a gift of being in this city yeah. when I'm in well, my 20s. Comfortable in your own skin and somehow and not. Skin. And also the gift of being, I, I don't know, of being, well, was, I don't know what it is, but it's, I stopped questioning why I liked things. And I just started saying, because I think sometimes what happens is people say, I like this, but it's not cool. Like, uh-huh. Francis, this that song by Francis, not a cool song. I think it's in the Fifty Shades Darker soundtrack. Right, it's a fucking great song. And Say you didn't care. Yeah, you don't, I don't care. Fucking care that it's a piece of. I, it, that's. I don't care that Demi Lovato is laughable. I like Demi Lovato. I like Taylor Swift. It's like if you stop challenging, don't, don't compare them. They're no, entirely I know, different. They're not, Tra- Taylor Swift's a different. great artist, but no. Demi Lovato's a singer. It's totally different. It is, but it's. But yes. I, I, I'm okay. But I get it. I get liking it. Yes. it. And I think what happens sometimes is that we're so worried about being cool. Mm-hmm. We're so huge. Worried, this is huge. So worried that that what if I like something and someone doesn't like it? And I learned very quickly that the best thing you would be is like okay. And I think that to me was the great gift. Yeah, of, not caring about being cool in that way is an enormous, yes. enormous thing. And I don't remember when it, I know that's not true. I do remember when it happened. I remember what, where I was in my life and I was, I was living here and I was going to school. I was going to grad school. I was in Columbia and I was realizing with a friend of mine, we were just having these very long talks um, he's an actor and, and we, I, you know, we would just go walking everywhere. And I realized that if I could just let go of being cool and accepted, huh. I would totally have everything at my fingertips and not be embarrassed about liking what I liked. And that became like the saving grace because then I can say, I want to make a movie that references Cocteau and Cassavetes, but also references James Cameron. And there's no difference because I like all of them. I think it's okay that I, The Abyss is one of my favorite movies. I'm not going to, you know, like I don't need to challenge my own tastes because they're my tastes. And if you stop editing for coolness, everything's so much easier. You know how much space that takes up in your brain? I referenced The Abyss the other day. I referenced the oh, Michael Bean. I referenced Michael Bean going good. crazy at depth in oh. the other day and compared it to Trump. That, um, we talk about that movie a lot because to me, The Wedding Ring is the perfect... It, I'm not going to spoil it, but if you watch the movie, The Wedding Ring in The Abyss is the perfect um, prop storytelling. Like we, I, I, to me, that's the that's the... Epitome of how television. I think work. that movie is like probably flawed, but I uh, I love it anyway. I love it. Like anyway. I I remember seeing it in the theater and being just you know he's a super genius. I mean he's a super genius, but you do have the ability to deploy the iconography and language of cool. Like you lit, you do. It's an interesting kind of like dichotomy that yeah. you're talking about. It's different. It's like a post cool. 
Yeah. Well, I think I don't like to think of things as being cool or not cool. I just, if I like it, I like it. If I don't like it, I don't like it. It's okay. If you and I don't like the same thing, yeah, it's okay. Not yeah, everybody. You're comfortable being wrong. I'm okay no, being I'm just, wrong. No, but I don't look. I am too. I'm a hundred. Yeah. I I don't like the Grateful Dead. Right. I understand that people love the Grateful Dead and think it's amazing. I don't like the, the Dave Matthews Band. Anytime anybody has a jam band, my skin starts crawling. I think you're right about one of those and wrong about one of those. <laughs> but here's the thing: I want. It doesn't matter which. Uh, I could make you a ten-song Dead tape that you would like. Because would, I hated the Dead. You would only dead, be the 87th man. I hated the Dead. Me, I was totally wrong. One of the great regrets of my life. Not, not like um, yeah. real. Like one of the great sort of cultural regrets of my life is I probably had 10 opportunities to see Jerry and I never did. And then after he died, like five years after he died, I suddenly realized why he was great. And I like now know and I love Jerry Garcia. But I, and I'm, I so regret not having gone to see And maybe one them. day, maybe one day it'll I come never back. liked the dead. I didn't, but now I could, I could make you the tape, but that doesn't matter. I How guess amazing, what I'm interested in. the way, that we're saying is the tape. Like, it's I'd a make you a tape. It's a, you'd make me a tape. I'd have sure, to go find a tape a deck Spotify to play it. Playlist. <laughs> but it feels like a tape. To you, if I were making it for you, it would yeah, feel like making feel like a tape. tape for some reason. Uh, God, there's so much I want to ask you about. I, I didn't get a satisfying enough answer about this, okay. which is I understand that's great that you sort of uh, don't feel bad about what you like. But I guess the, the, the more, the next layer of that question is. How do you think you developed what is an incredibly refined palette for things, right? So that's a slightly different. So yes, part of it is exposure to a lot of things. I guess I'm asking, were you born that way or did that, right? Because there are things, right? Were you born that Because it, it is the kind of thing where somebody could not even like you and they still would ask you Who doesn't for those like questions, me, right? <laughs> but I'm saying you're, it's like not, um, it's not because we're friends. It's like you have um, a skill the same way Michael Johnson is fast. Like you have an ability to know what's good and what's not good in lots of areas and why something's special and why, oh no, like, you know, if I were like, you went to, if you went to a store and there were 17 bottle openers and one was more expensive, but one looked right, you would kind of know. So I'm just curious how you developed that faculty. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, I really don't know. I'd have to think about it. And But you do know everybody asks you those things, people right? People do ask me. I think I honestly, it's funny because in my experience of it, it's because I'm a busybody and I offer opinions where I'm not asked. So my experience <laughs> is not that I'm good at things. It's just that I really like get it up in people's fucking business. So I'm like, oh, you want to know about a hotel? Let me tell you 17 hotels. And also this is where you should eat and let me control everything in your life. Because it all comes down to the fact that I'm a control freak and want to control everything in the world. And sure. don't okay. enjoy. Okay, good. So this gets to where I wanted to get to. So you're a control freak and an artist and all this stuff. Yes. And have a refined cultural palette and a very clear opinion and don't sure. mind arguing about it. Yet you've built this career now where you're a member of mm-hmm. writing rooms. And it's the most blue collar job that there is. It's highly, Absolutely. it's an incredibly highly paid job. Yes. So it's a 99%, it's yes. a 1% job. Yes. But within the 1% thing, yes. being on a writing staff yes. is a blue, is the blue co- most blue collar one of these writing jobs. You are the jobs. third guy on the bench in a medium NFL team who maybe goes and gets a, a pass once in a while. That's your job. You're not. Right. The and I've never lived, I've been lucky enough never to yeah. live that, right? I've always just, Dave and I have always just created our own stuff. Yeah. I don't think I could, I actually not sure I could do it, but like, because of the need to sublimate your ego and pure artistic, like yes. your artistic, I think I would chafe against it very hard for me. How do you do it? Like, how well, do you think about the job? What are the good parts of it? 
what are the bad parts of it? If someone's thinking about a life as a writer, a lot of the time I talk about, hey, chase your dream, and I mean all that and work rigorously, but there are lots of different levels that that lands at, lots of different ways to do it. How do you think about it? Um, Well, I would say the key is to have a dad who never approved of you and then constantly (laughs) need to seek his approval. That is the only way to make it work. No, because the writers are, you mean because of the showrunner yeah. relationship? You, it's no, and actually, I'm, I'm, that is not my relationship with my boss at all. Um, but it, that I, in a way, part of my psychology is that I am, look, I'm not, this isn't psychology 101. You know, if, if your parents don't approve of what you do, or my dad didn't approve of what I, does not approve of what I do or doesn't really understand it or get it and withholds all approval, then you will constantly be seeking approval. And like any sure. um, person that seeks their parents' approval, you will put yourself in a dynamic where approval is given and not given. So it's that's part of it. But honestly, why I like it, I like making stuff. I'm a very, I'm like a, I like the craft of making and talking and writing. And also the fact that you get to write stuff that gets shot right away because I suffered through indie films. So yeah. for me, like, the fact that everything that gets on the page is is going to be shot and that it's our responsibility to not just come up with it, make it make sense, make it sound good, make it right, but also shoot it, edit it, finish it, put music on it, deliver it, go to the mix. I get to that. So that's when my job. Yeah, when you're a producer on a show, yeah. your episode, you follow your episode the whole way through. And you- I'm lucky enough in this particular sh- on this particular show, I am an end-to-end producer on every episode. So I... I am in the writing, I am in the outlining, I am in the script, I am in the shooting, casting, music, post-delivery, I'm at every mix. I I have been blessed with a boss who has said, I want you to have all of my skills and has decided to give me all his skills. So I don't know, this is only my third job in television. My first job was with Amy Sherman Palladino. I was a staff writer. I was pregnant when she hired me, which is crazy. Um, I learned how to be in a room. I really learned how to be in a room and how to behave in a room and how to read the room and how to solve the problem of the room and not solve my own shit and, and say, what is the problem and how can I solve it? That all you do in a room is take the water that's handed to you and carry it. That's your entire job. And everything else is ego, not necessary. Every writer in the room, that's your job. Everything else is production and that's important stuff and the writing and all of that. Then I was on a show that shall remain nameless, but you can look it up on IMDb. That was a terrible experience for me and was, was, was a truly terrible, sexist, horrible, the worst thing that's ever happened in my career. Honestly, I think even worse than the, uh, I depressed and had to go to therapy. Just bad, 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 bad. Then I got this job and Josh Saffron, who runs the show, knew me as an independent filmmaker and actually knew my movie and wanted me there as a filmmaker. And so very quickly, my job became end-to-end television production and the whole thing being in the room all the way to making the show. And so for me right now, I'm in show running school. And I he knows this and I know this. I'm in show running school. The next thing is mine. I'm not... I'm. I'm here to learn how to do it from someone who does it with passion and grace and thoughtfulness and energy and who I happen to have the same taste as. So that's, for me, that's why I like this job right now. I, I'm the middle linebacker that wants to be a quarterback. I, I don't, I, I have no intention of. And how do you manage the thing of, um, the deadlines of television doing the work every day when you have to write an episode so much fun you don't like it i love it no i yes i fucking love it um i think it's different when you're the creator of a show and the showrunner because it's all our vision it's 
yeah, you, you know, Dave and I invented these, these, the, with Andrew, we invented these characters. We understand their psychology at a, like, um, uh, yeah, at a uh, slightly lower level. So the adjust, and, and, and also because of the 18 hour a day job that we have, the adrenaline. That's, the, I love uh, it. So I get sick at the end of the season, no matter what. Like, I, I, the adrenaline drops out and I'm like, uh, wasted, completely wasted. Yeah. But for six months, I'm fueled on adrenaline. Yes. But I get asked about writer's block all the time and about how people, so like, how do you, do you have a practice? Like, what's your practice of getting the work done? Do you have rituals? When do you write? How do you make sure My that own you, stuff or the show? The show, the sh- I just write because I have to. Yeah, what does that mean? Like, literally, it's, you know, like, the network is like, we need an outline, and you turn in the outline, and they're like, great, we need a script. And it's like, okay, I'm going to write this act, and I have an hour, and I'm going to write an act. Do you write in the office, or do you write at home? I write in the office, because I have a kid at home, and it's hard to write. And the only the only two things I have is, I um I have to shut my, well, it's a few things. I have to shut my door. I have to stand up. I, stay, I stand when I write. I have to light a candle, because I am, have, like, I don't like smelling things. And I subverbalize. So I have to shut what? what? I subverbalize. I talk out loud. Right. Um, I don't know how people do it without talking out loud because it's all meant to be said. So I have to hear it. And so I, and I used to not subverbalize and then I'd have to go back and reread it because I couldn't hear it. So I subverbalize and that's it. And I just, I write in restaurants a lot. I don't subverbalize. Oh God. I have headphones on big headphones. You have big headphones. Blast music. And I I edit in, I edit my own stuff in restaurants. I edit in public because it's embarrassing. So I use the power of mortification in my own scripts. Do you cut for yourself on a laptop? Oh, you edit your scripts. I not, edit my not, scripts. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I edit scripts. Like, so I, I print you know, out a hard copy and, and I, I, read, in a, a thing, right. I read pencil. So you just stuff. are able to, because the deadline just dive in. That's why you're built I'm, to do I'm this fast. TV thing. I'm very fast. I'm not, outlining is my least favorite thing. I don't like writing outlines because I, I, Nobody I, I likes resent writing it. Outlines. I resent the Me fuck too. Out of it. Right. Because you're precious. Like we all are. Yeah. And your creative whims should be able like, to drive the this thing. fucking thing. And I it's agree. also an outline is a sales tool in television. An outline is a way to tell the network what they're selling. A script is a script. So, but for me, I can write, I can write an act in 90 minutes, a decent act in 90 minutes at this point, maybe That's an hour. Um, I can, yeah, I can write a scripted day. It's if so, I had to, if I really had to, I mean, it, it'd hurt. The best line about this was Scott Rosenberg's in the old days uh, when he was the most successful screen. I mean, he was, a, as a young person, the most successful screenwriter in Hollywood. He's been on the podcast. But one of his things was he was like, if you're a true pro, you can write a script in the time it takes the average person to read one. Yeah. Which is uh, just no, no. It's, it's not true, by it's the way. Not true, but but awesome. I also had an ex who said you should have to read a book the same with the same time in the same time that people wrote it. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a good plan. I'd like read a word a day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need instant yeah, Unless you're reading Anthony Trollope. You exactly. have to, then, then you can. <laughs> then just um, typing. Look, I have, uh, I have I, so many I'm more fine. questions for part two. We have to stop. Because we have to we stop? Have to stop. But um, <laughs> we're going to do part two of this. Because I want to ask you all a bunch of questions about literally just about being a woman doing this. And, yes. and about mentorship. And about the responsibilities you feel. And about... The, the whole journey, because even the casually tossed off things about, oh, I worked on the worst show and it was a horrible sex experience. It was like, horrible. The, you know, I, we didn't talk about the writers' rooms and yeah. sort of what they're like and 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 uh, the male-dominated culture that it's still, other than uh, if you're in Shonda world, that it still is. Hey, best actor, <laughs> where can people find you and follow you on Twitter and ask I'm, you what they should listen to or where I'm or always watch? the same. I'm Beth Shacks, B-E-T-H-S-H-A-X. Always. And everyone calls me Shax, which is why. I was about to say Shax. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Um, Really glad to have you on the show. Go back to your writer's room. And um, people, follow Shax. 
on Twitter and ask her questions and she will steer you right. If you want to find me, I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. If you ask me what to wear, I will say fleece, so don't ask me. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. What's that? I'm going to drink coffee. It's okay. We can both yeah. drink. Oh, yeah. awesome. Wait, both of us can drink coffee. Awesome. Awesome. We're writers. What are we going to do but drink coffee? <laughs> if it were the 70s, we'd do blow. But it's, <laughs> unfortunately, we came to do this and later. I know. So, so wrong. So, so for wrong. us, it's coffee. It's good coffee.